Hello everyone and welcome to Curiosity Killed the Rat. My name is Matt, I'm a science enthusiast, and I'm speaking on lands whose traditional custodians are the Noongar people. This month's episode is a little bit different from our normal ones. Those familiar with the show know normally it is myself and my co-host Cade, and often a special guest or two, and we talk about all things science. Sometimes it's learning new things, new concepts, new ideas, and sometimes it's taking existing ideas that are out there in the world that might not be 100% accurate and doing our best to convey the right information. Ultimately, the goal of our show is to dispel any sort of misinformation and disinformation out there, specifically usually about science. However, this month, my co-host Kate has been working very, very hard on a video that is incredibly important to them and to myself as well, talking about and debunking the claims made and the ideas put forward by Channel 7's most recent Spotlight edition. Talking about detransitioning and ideas around transgenderedness in general. Given this was such an important video and topic for them and for us as well, in lieu of a regular episode, we are going to be playing that video on the show here. Um, this is just the audio from the video. Um, if you would like to see the full video, I highly recommend it. There will be a link to that YouTube video in the description. As always, you can find all of the references for this video in the description. And to stay tuned for when we return to our regular content, when our next episode's coming out, anything that's going on in our lives, you can follow us on social media, at CuriosityRat, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, we also have a Patreon. If you enjoy the content that we put out and want us to keep putting more of it out, no pressure whatsoever. But if you've got a few bucks to spare, it goes a long way in helping us make this content for you. It takes time, it takes energy, but it does take money as well. So anything is appreciated, but again, not everyone has that money to spend, and we want to try and continue to have this content be free for everyone. And at the start of this, I would like to state the same content warning that Cade puts at the start of their video, which was a content warning for transphobia, blatant misinformation, and embarrassingly bad journalism. I was 15 when I had my breast surgically removed. It's the most controversial story this year. Children are being told they should change from boy to girl or girl to boy from as young as 12 years old. Thousands of kids are doing it and regretting it. I've gone through a medical catastrophe. And parents are being kept in the dark. No children should be transitioning without the parents' knowledge and consent. I believe our children are being lied to. These are life-changing decisions being made before our kids have any idea of the consequences. Is a generation being brainwashed? It's a medical scandal. I was just looking for a sense of belonging. Seven New Spotlight on 7 and 7 Plus. Okay, cool. So we're doing this? We're doing this. Hello, Internet. Uh... My name is Cade, and I am a neuroscientist, a research scientist, and a science communicator. This means that I spend a lot of time looking at research and evidence, um, using them to try and draw the most logical conclusions, and then talking about <laughs> the whole process to 
anybody who'll listen. So as a result, I find myself feeling weirdly qualified to make this um, and just examine this uh, documentary you just saw the promo of um, the way it truly deserves. And so if you're not sure what I'm talking about um, or what that promo was about, uh, Channel 7 made a decision last Sunday night um, to air an interesting episode of their program, Spotlight. Um, now, if you're not familiar with Spotlight, what the station claims is that it is a series of investigative specials from Seven News Australia, focusing on major breaking news events and long form investigations of national significance. Sure. And okay, yes, I think a lot of us know to always leave at least a sliver of skepticism when engaging with this sensationalized, mainstream, privately funded media. But given that in 2022, the Seven Network was the highest rated television network in Australia, the messages that they choose to broadcast can have potentially pretty widespread reach. And so I think it's probably important to examine them, you know, every so often, just run a cheeky little bit of fact checking. Because I don't know. Facts might not care about my feelings, but uh, my feelings sure do care about the broadcast of accurate facts. So before we get started, I will just point out that some excellent videos, fact-checking and calling this program out, have like already emerged, and they are much shorter than this one. Um, in particular, Them Fatel has been putting out some great shorter-form content on Instagram and TikTok. God, okay, I had other plans today, but this is fucking cooked, so this is now what we're doing instead. Which I highly recommend you check out, especially if you don't have the attention span for a video this long, or you just don't need or want this much detail. And also trans people, I will be showing some clips from the doco throughout this video, and even though I will provide a plethora of evidence to rebut them, um, watching that crap can still hurt. So I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you know your own emotional capacity for this stuff, and I encourage you to respect it. But my god, I watched that documentary in its entirety, uh, because I wanted to get an idea of what mis- or disinformation was being broadcast, so that I could be equipped to counter it. And I was just so shook by just, like, how bad it was, like, the whole damn way through. So... Anybody looking for an evidence-based breakdown of what was presented in that documentary, I got you fam. Buckle the heck up, we are in for a ride. Okay, so we've seen the promo and the episode opens with a slightly different but very similar clip. So let's just have a look at the main points um, from that intro that they want us to be primed with going into this. Like, what's our setup here? What are they about to spend an hour trying to convince us of? Children are being told they should change from boy to girl or girl to boy from as young as 12 years old. Is a generation being brainwashed? We are in the midst of a medical scandal. The desperate warning every parent needs to hear. I was totally lied to. Now, on the 7 Plus website, where I actually watched this episode, um, it's titled Detransitioning, but it seems like the gender agenda may have been the original uh, title based on this, like, screen that appears before and after every ad break, which is just 
very dramatic. But um, either way, what they're hoping to convince you of is pretty clear, right? It's this idea that hundreds of Australian children are being fed this big transgender lie, taking irreversible medical action as a result of that, and then regretting it. And uh, actually, if you go and read the description accompanying the detransitioning title on the Seven website, they very clearly assert to have uncovered some massive controversy where irreparable damage is happening to a generation of confused kids. Um, big claim, big claim, but they do have a media budget, 50 odd minutes of broadcast time, and a handful of medical professionals at their disposal. So surely if this claim was well-founded, this would be an easy sell. Like this would, you know, I'd come out of it and be like, oh yeah, okay, I'm concerned. But um, to save you a bunch of time and just jump straight to the point, uh, the point that they are trying to argue is in fact so poorly founded that they spend their full budget and time slot doing the most impressive contortions of facts and manipulation of narrative. Um, it's wild. So before the episode had even aired, um, the promo alone sparked the release of this TikTok. Channel 7 kind of made it look like I regret transitioning. That kind of looks like I'm one of the kids that regrets it. I transitioned at 13 and I do not regret it at all. So this is trans woman Grace Highland, one of many transgender people whose images and videos were shown during this documentary, um, often accompanied by a voiceover talking about something completely unrelated to the pictures being shown. Why are you using my photos? Why would you choose my face, my photos? It makes no sense. See, now I actually disagree with Grace here. I think it makes perfect sense. Um, you see, because if Channel 7 only used images of people who had consented, they would have no content, uh, no case, no show. Even though my face is in this, I don't agree with it. I don't stand for this story. I don't stand for the sensationalization of this whole thing. Don't get it twisted, Channel 7. So since this TikTok came out, it gained a bit of traction and articles have been published criticizing Channel 7's misleading use of Grace's images. And unsurprisingly, some other people have come forward claiming similar misrepresentations. So then credit where credit is due, Channel 7 released an apology. In a promotional video for Seven News Spotlight, the image of a transgender woman was shown during a voiceover discussing children expressing regret over transitioning. We acknowledge the photo might inadvertently imply that the individual in question regretted their transition. As soon as we were made aware, the image was removed and the promo replaced. We sincerely apologize for any confusion this may have caused. <sighs> uh, I wanted to now like jokingly be like, cool. So they've apologized, mission accomplished. But I just, I just cannot accept this. The whole freaking documentary repeatedly used uncredited images and videos of transgender people during voiceovers claiming falsehoods. There cannot possibly be any sincerity in the apology for causing confusion. Like that was what they were trying to do. But I mean, look, we knew that. We knew the apology wasn't sincere and knew it probably never would be. So why am I still bothering to make this video? Because look, in my opinion, the misleading use of videos and photos of trans people was like so far from the worst thing that this documentary did. Um, the blatantly 
misleading disinformation repeatedly presented was gross, it's beyond gross. Um, and the fact that so much time and money went into producing this thing just has made me so bloody angry that I needed, I needed to direct that anger somewhere. Um, and I haven't actually yet seen something really pull apart bit by bit, all of the information presented, uh, in this show and comparing it with the evidence, um, which feels like a helpful thing to exist. So here we are now. I'm not under the illusion that this is going to change the minds of transphobes and people that already strongly believe the message this documentary was pushing. Um, but I'm hopeful that it might provide some information and resources for people looking to fight back against this. And so, yeah, this is a long video. Heck, we're already, what, 10 minutes in and I have barely made it past the stuff we got in the promo. That is a testament to just how much misleading and downright just incorrect information was in there. So, all right. Let's dive the heck back in, shall we? Tonight, Liam Bartlett investigates the dramatic rise in child and adolescent gender transitions in Australia. Okay, cool. So that's what we're doing, is it? Just some innocent investigatory journalism into this true increasing rate of young people undergoing gender transitions in Australia. We're definitely not making some completely unfounded suggestion that these increased rates are due to children being pressured into transitioning against their will and then coming to regret it later. No, uh, good, just making sure. For some, it is the answer to who they really are, but for others, it's causing irreparable physical and emotional damage. Interestingly, the first thing that happens in the documentary from here is that we are introduced to two people. An Australian who regrets gender transition commenced as an adult, and an American who regrets adolescent gender transition. Now, it is unclear what hearing from someone who regrets an adult commenced transition can tell us about the rise in youth transition rates, um, but we hear some of their story. And then we hear the story of the American, Chloe. And Channel 7 hits us with this. One thing Chloe's case proves beyond doubt is that location has nothing to do with the way kids can be influenced. She grew up here in rural California, best known around these parts for being the pumpkin capital of the world. But it may as well be country Victoria or outback Queensland. I love this. Um, so here, instead of acknowledging that their guest perhaps isn't the most representative of the Australian situation, they claim it proves beyond a doubt that location doesn't matter. Like, sorry, this proves nothing beyond a doubt. What it suggests to me, though, is that they could not find a single one of the thousands of Australian children they claim are having these regrets, and so they had to look overseas. Saying it may as well be country Victoria means absolutely nothing because it isn't country Victoria. Find me one example of somebody in country Victoria or outback Queensland who received a double mastectomy at age 15 and regrets it. They couldn't because the regulations here actually make top surgery unavailable to people under the age of 16 and incredibly hard to get under the age of 18, especially without the consent of a parent or guardian. Making it seem like we can use this American case to illustrate an Australian problem is, well, it's the first of many misleading things that this doco does, so let's just continue, shall we? From the transgender community, I would hear about how these treatments are all safe for children and adolescents and that the risks were far outweighed by the benefits of them. Though it 
that I'm thinking doesn't really take into account just how dangerous it is to transition as a kid. They then just cut away like there without giving any examples of these dangers, right? Like what makes it dangerous to transition as a kid? Within the context of the show, it's made to sound like this snippet is talking about puberty blockers. Um, it's what they were talking about just before the clip I pulled, and I will go more into puberty blockers later, but I will just say that we do have evidence that these are safe. Um, but also, it's important to mention here that when we're talking about transition in kids, we are actually talking about social transition before and above anything else. So this means changing their name, which pronouns they go by, the type of clothing they wear. Um, and I will acknowledge there are documented dangers uh, to social transition, which for children usually comes in the form of bullying. The dangers that trans people face after social transition are a direct result of intolerance and hate fueled by programs like this one. Not because there is anything actually inherently dangerous about going by a different set of pronouns. Like, And one only needs to spend a little bit of time on the internet to see that this very program by Channel 7 is indeed doing just that. It is fueling the hate and intolerance towards trans people, and it is emboldening those who might be the cause of our danger. Anyway, back to this idea of puberty blockers. I don't like the idea of puberty blockers as a little... No, no, I mean, Sweden, I think, has outlawed them. It absolutely permanently destroys people. The, the bones, their sex drive, you can't just play with nature in that way. So this is all just horrendously false. Um, so, puberty blockers. Let's get our facts straight. What are they? So these are medications which have been prescribed without issue or question or public scandal to children since the 1980s. Very simply, they work by disrupting the signal from the brain that instructs the body to increase production of sex hormones, something which happens at puberty, which then leads to all of the physical changes that come with puberty. Importantly, these medications delay onset of puberty. We aren't talking about depriving anyone of puberty, and they are reversible. Like, once you stop taking them, you will go through puberty. Um, so traditionally, like, these were prescribed to cisgender children to treat precocious puberty, which is early onset puberty, when it happens sort of before the age of eight or nine years old. Um, and they are still used also for this purpose today, in addition to their utilization in transgender healthcare. I also found out while learning all about these medications um, that they have been, and still are, also used for adults with a range of other medical conditions. And puberty blockers definitely don't permanently destroy people. Like, I don't know, there was a mention of bones specifically, um, and while there is evidence that puberty blockers may cause decrease in bone density, um, this was found to be restored either once the blockers were ceased and regu regular puberty occurs, or once gender-affirming hormone therapy is commenced. Research has found that there is no long-term or permanent susceptibility to fractures um, as a result of taking puberty blockers in your youth. Also, Sweden did not outlaw puberty blockers. In 2022, Sweden's National Board of Health and Welfare said that puberty blockers should only be used in exceptional cases and that a clinician's professional judgment is used to determine whether gender-affirming care is medically necessary, but the treatment is certainly not banned and is offered as part of Sweden's National Healthcare Service. So, but okay, the person shown making these claims um, is not a scientist or a medical professional, nor someone who actually went on puberty blockers, um, so they're misinformed. I, I do not forgive the spread of misinformation, but I can maybe forgive them for being misinformed. Uh, we'll come back to puberty blockers when we hear from some medical professionals later. 
So I actually had to step away from this project for a sec because, um, like I said early on, I think that it is important for trans people to respect their emotional capacity for this stuff. Um, but ultimately, I decided that finishing this was too important to me, so I'm back recording from a different room, but we're back. Um, because next on the show, they change direction a bit and they chat to a politician. David, it's illegal here in Victoria for the school not to agree with the child. What sort of craziness is that? You know, we had concerns about this when it was, this law when it was first brought in in Victoria back in 2021. The very fact that no one is really allowed to say, oh, hold up a minute, um, you know, the, the teachers can't, the psychologists can't, the doctors can't, they all just have to basically affirm uh, whatever the child says. Uh, it's concerning. So the way this clip is framed in the doco it is so intentionally made to look like there's been this crazy law that has been passed in Victoria, which is permitting children to medically transition without parental consent and making it illegal for anybody to say no. Um, so, okay, what is like this Victorian law that they're talking about? Um, since 2021, the Victorian Department of Education allows schools to support gender diverse students under 18 to socially transition without parental consent. So the policy they're talking about is for the schools to establish a gender affirmation support plan, allowing students to affirm their gender through the use of preferred name, pronouns, uniforms. Uh, this just means sorting things like bathrooms, like it, and it actually it's stated that this plan should be developed in consultation with the parents or guardians where possible. The policy simply means that if the parents refuse to gender or name their child correctly, then schools should support the child. Like, it seems obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Schools cannot prescribe hormones or perform surgeries. This is not happening behind parents' backs or despite parental refusal. Like, and because unlike Channel 7, I love evidence. I want to highlight that studies have found when gender diverse people are embraced and supported at school, they have better social, educational, and health outcomes for life. All good things, if you ask me. I guess that's why they didn't ask me. Now I'm just going to focus in on one of those studies I just mentioned because it is equally relevant to the next segment of this wonderful doco. Um, so this was a 2021 systematic review that included 44 peer-reviewed studies, essentially uncovering the primary risk and resilience factors for poor mental health in transgender youth. So in addition to school safety and belonging, a big resilience factor was found to be parent connectedness. So this is stuff like how safe young people feel confiding in their parents or how cared for they feel in the family. Your daughter says on social media, I'm now a boy. And, and so what sort of conversation did you have with her then? I just said, this is crazy. I said, you, you're not a boy. <clears throat> you're simply not a boy. People can't change sex. Now, this whole segment was just particularly challenging and painful to watch, so I am not going to show very much of it. Um, but as you can see, we are introduced to some parents. Uh, to summarise, these parents were upset because they found out that their child had socially transitioned at school without their knowledge. So when the parents found out via social media, they refused to affirm the child's gender. 
the child then became suicidal, which, according to the parents, was the fault of the school's support and the online trans community, not their negative reaction. Um, hopefully, I have already made it clear how this goes completely against the evidence we have. Uh, anyway, when this child was hospitalised due to suicidality, the parents were, first of all, outraged at the hospital staff for affirming the child's gender and prioritising keeping this kid alive. But then they also made some outrageous, entirely baseless claims. Do you know what the doctors were saying to her without you there? They were telling her that she needed to get onto testosterone and, you know, have her breast cut off. Who was telling her this? The nurses? The doctors? Yep. Yep. All the staff. All the staff. Would all the staff. Really? Like, all the staff were pressuring this person behind your back into medical transition? <laughs> In reality, the hospital staff were merely following best practice guidelines and they affirmed this child's gender and then they provided a referral to a paediatric endocrinologist for further consultation. They also did, very satisfyingly, uh, call the parents out for the clear psychological harm that their lack of support was doing for their child. They were awful to us. They put us down in front of her. They told us in front of her that we were bigoted, unsupportive parents, that we needed to teach our family inclusion. Good. You guys aren't the victims here. And Channel 7 has had to work very hard against all of the evidence to make it seem like you are. So I'm also not going to show much of this next bit because it's atrocious. Um, but I think it is really important to get an idea of the way that this whole thing has been dramatized. So they do this whole dramatic reveal of the top surgery scars interlaced with clips of this human crying about how the loss hasn't been processed yet. And just, <sighs> so like all this does as a piece of media is help fuel any shame, disgust and self-loathing that is clearly already causing this person so much pain. And the only reason I'm bringing attention to this part of the show at all is because, to me, this moment so clearly demonstrates that Channel 7 and the people making this documentary do not actually care about the well-being of any of these detransitioners. The very people they claim to be making this documentary to stand up for. They are being cruel to, and they are hurting. I just... Anyway. More than halfway through, we get to meet our first medical professional. Child psychiatrist, Dr. Gillian Spencer. So, to get an idea of her credibility, let's just watch the very first clip they play of her. Do you think the hospital want to sack you? Yes. <laughs> yes, they do. They want you off the books. They don't want me hanging around in the hospital. Fantastic. Strong start. I'm full of trust. But okay, no, this is good. We can finally have a medical professional set the record straight, re the non-permanent nature of puberty blockers. So let's see what she has to say when asked about that specifically. But uh, there's no coming back from that, is there? Well, what we know from their widespread use is that they prevent the gender dysphoria from healing. And so more than 95% of kids who get onto puberty blockers will go on to cross-sex hormones. And then the pathway beyond that is lifelong and includes dangerous surgery. What a blatantly misleading response. Like a truly slimy politician style answer. Like especially given the earlier claim by someone else that puberty blockers cause permanent damage. This answer is so obviously constructed to give the wrong impression about the reversible nature of these medications. 
So what she's actually most likely referencing are these two studies that came out in 2022 that found that 91 to 98% of trans children who start hormone treatment in adolescence continue it into adulthood. And indeed, some of the effects of hormone replacement therapy, once you've kind of progressed to that stage of treatment, are irreversible. But you know what else is irreversible? Some of the effects of going through the puberty dictated by your birth sex. Going through a puberty of any type is going to have irreversible effects. So then shouldn't the question actually be which irreversible effects are going to cause the least distress to the individual that we are treating? But of course, that isn't what this was about. She is making it sound like puberty blockers are irreversible. But okay, these studies and her claim about the pipeline of blockers to further permanent transition measures in adulthood like, are legit. The interesting thing is that her and I interpret these same data in very different ways. So she is taking it to mean that puberty blockers are like this guaranteed gateway drug to future hormones and surgeries, which is apparently enough to consider the blockers irreversible themselves. I interpret it to mean that we are correct to trust these kids to know themselves, right? If the decision they make to delay the puberty of their birth sex is something that 98% stand by and follow up with, with hormones and gender affirming surgeries later in life, that tells me we're doing something right. Interestingly, until these studies came out, the idea that many kids discontinued hormone treatment after adolescence was used as a common argument against allowing medical interventions for trans youth. And now the very opposite finding is being twisted to make the same case. Now, this psychiatrist claims that her argument makes sense because being on puberty blockers prevents the gender dysphoria from healing and implying that this healing is something that would occur if the children were denied these blockers and able to go through puberty as nature had intended. Now, if this were the case, why are there also so many transgender adults seeking hormones and surgery despite getting to go through puberty once already, right? Also, if puberty blockers were indeed some dangerous gateway drug to being trans, then how do we explain all of the cisgender people who, like I said, since the 1980s, have successfully safely started and stopped these medications if their puberty came on too early, or for other medical conditions? The evidence just does not at all align with the claims that are being made here. Right, so from the stats, we know that pretty much once you start taking them, you're on that bus. You're on that bus. Okay, but from the stats, we also know that adults who took puberty blockers as adolescents experienced significantly less lifetime suicidal ideation than those who wanted these medications but were unable to access them. But let's not let that get in the way. Now, our next doctor makes some similar false claims that I won't bother rehashing, but he does raise an interesting point, and I can understand how this might be confusing. And it makes no sense when we are told by the transgender community that gender can be fluid. So someone can be gender fluid, but we're supposed to accept that these children's gender identity is fixed at the age of 10, and this is how their gender identity will be for the rest of their lives. It, how can something be both fluid and fixed in a 10-year-old? It makes no sense to me. All right, I want to start by pointing out that literally no irreversible changes or decisions are being made for and by 10-year-olds, which is, again, not how this is being made to sound. Gender-affirming care for a 10-year-old, like I've said, will predominantly be social transition, and the only medical intervention that would be considered is puberty blockers, which, as I've already covered, isn't treating anything as fixed. In fact, they serve to prevent 
puberty-induced changes, that would be fixed. Buying children some time for some further introspection, reflection, usually with the help of an experienced therapist. But then we also have this misunderstanding of gender fluidity, I think. So yes, as he says, people can be gender fluid, which is to say their sense of gender and gender identity shifts maybe over time or depending on the situation. Um, there are some people who use this term to label their gender. Um, Courtney Act is probably one of the most well-known public people who, who identifies specifically as gender fluid. Um, but this is a little different from the general sort of fluidity of gender, which is more just the notion that someone's gender identity and expression, along with literally any other feature of identity, um, has the capacity to grow and shift over time. And like, this is not the case for everyone, and it's not always to an extent that requires any action, but staying open to this concept allows for people who maybe figure out their translator in life, like me, to socially and medically shift things without judgment to align with our growing understanding of our gender identity. Regardless, we are certainly not encouraging or even allowing 10-year-olds to make medical decisions which bind them to a fixed gender identity or expression for life. But we then go back to our suspended child psychiatrist, who tells us what she thinks we should be saying to children presenting with gender dysphoria. And we want to do everything we can to support you through it. But we know that the risks and long-term consequences of transition are so serious that we can't just assume that that's the right way forward. Because of this, we're going to continue to use your biological name and pronouns. Sorry, but what is a biological name? Like, even before I came out as trans, nobody called me by the name that was on my birth certificate. Like, names aren't biological, nor are pronouns uh, for that matter. But I just can't understand this claim that they'll do everything they can to support this child in distress, except of course just affirm their identity with something even as simple as the right name. Like, just think of all those risks and long-term consequences these poor children would face from temporarily going by a different name. In fact, there was a 2018 study which found that using a trans youth's chosen name in more contexts is associated with lower depression, lower suicidal ideation, and lower suicidal behaviour, which makes it even more wild when she then goes on to say, And there's no evidence that social transition or puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones reduce the suicide risk in children with gender dysphoria. No evidence? Except, I guess, the study I just mentioned. Or the ones I mentioned earlier around the importance of school and parental support, or access to puberty blockers. Or this UK study, which found that a supportive environment for social transition and timely access to gender-affirming healthcare were key protective features against trans people's high rates of suicidality. Or this one published recently straight out of Melbourne, which found that transgender adults seeking testosterone therapy have better mental health outcomes, including decreased suicidality with early treatment. Or if you want to discredit that because she was talking about youth specifically, here's one from 2022 looking at youth. Just like claiming there is no evidence is a blatant lie. But okay, so far in this well-balanced documentary, we've heard from both sides, uh, not. But just before the end, we do get an interview with a professional in support of gender clinics, yes. And honestly, shout out to Professor Ian Hickey for coming on and straight up calling it how it is. What you're doing is picking out and actually attempting to actually dramatise and sensationalise a particular side, which is really sad, I think. Sorry, sorry. Really sad. Let me just go back. 
he puts up a great fight and he does his best to correct the continuous misrepresentation of facts. But this interview is just wild. So at 15 years old, a child who is not legally deemed responsible enough to drive a car is somehow deemed medically fit enough to decide to mutilate her body surgically. The language, no, your language is first use language of mutilation, okay? The attempt to vilify the doctors involved and vilify the people involved, I think, is entirely inappropriate. I'm not vilifying anybody, I'm saying it's mutilation. For example, I mean, if you change your mind four years later and you've lost your breasts, you'd be pretty unhappy about it as at well. 15 Okay, so, obviously, hard agree with the professor here around the choice of the word mutilation. That's gross. In no way does this demonstrate any care or compassion towards the people in that scenario. But also, this is where I'm just going to take a sec to point out that breast reconstruction surgery is a thing, and it can be done years after a double mastectomy. Many breast cancer survivors do this. So, this is in fact an option if your regret years later really was that bad. More to the point, though, I want to draw attention to this study that came out earlier this year. So this study looked into the rate of regret and satisfaction of 139 participants who underwent a gender-affirming vasectomy, either two years or more prior. They found that on a five-point scale, with five indicating most satisfaction, the median satisfaction score was five, and the median decisional regret score on a 100-point scale was zero. Obviously, as on the show, they had two individuals who had had regrets about their top surgery. The results of this study don't mean that literally nobody ever regrets this surgery, but rates are incredibly low. There was also this study, which came out in the Journal of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, which looked at 1,989 individuals who underwent gender-affirming surgeries between 2016 and 2021. And so these included not just top surgery. Um, and the proportion of people who requested a reversal surgery or transitioned back to the sex assigned at birth was 0. 3%. And just for a little comparison, knee reconstruction surgeries, they have a dissatisfaction rate that can be as high as 30%. So if you're just double checking your math, yeah, that's 100 times higher. And other cosmetic surgeries, 60%. I will also point out that in the study, which found 0.3% requesting reversal surgery, that they also take the time in that paper to outline a care plan for those patients. The idea that these large numbers of people are having gender surgery regrets and just abandoned by the professionals is just, it's just incorrect. Then, after trying to cry, won't somebody think of the poor and mistreated parents being pushed aside in this process? This beautiful scene unfolds. And how many parents have you told to, to tell you the exact opposite? Again, are they in your show? Again, it's not exact It's not a mathematical competition. No, but it is a realistic one. You're trying to characterise a system on the basis of some particular cases and ignore the great majority. What is that? What is that? How do you explain the meteoric rise in numbers of kids in Australia presenting at gender clinics? That's a much more interesting question. That really was just a masterful change in subject to the moment he's called out for ignoring the majority of cases. And I'm just so entertained by the line, it's not a mathematical competition. I'm sorry, wasn't he the one who was earlier highlighting the importance of what the stats tell us? Does he know what stats are? So when doctors come to us and say this system is wrong. One. It's a medical scam. One. And, and, one doctor. And when child, one doctor. when child psychologists one doctor. come to us. So here you are on numbers again. 
So how many do you want us to find? Do you want, do you want me to go back out there and come back to I'd the like to refer, I'd like to refer to the College of Physicians. I'd like to refer to the AMA. I'd like to refer to the College of Psychiatrists. Large numbers of doctors here in Australia and internationally who are continually looking at the evidence. So yes, thank you. Oh, it is hilarious to me that the people making this doco decided to include these bits because they clearly think that the interviewer is somehow winning this argument when in reality he just looks like a fool. Um, but okay, just in case all of this evidence was starting to convince you that maybe trans healthcare is not a bad thing, I'm going to make one more emotional plea. I think you know, your, your argument about the majority is really heartless. Gosh, yeah, Professor, have some heart for those few people who regret their transition. You know, have some heart like the good folk at Channel 7 who have decided to sensationalise and platform the pain of these people for attention and revenue. Have some heart like the reporters that keep calling these bodies mutilated and irrevocably damaged, actively feeding the shame. I just am astounded by the audacity of this reporter to act like he's got these people's best interests at heart when this documentary has repeatedly demonstrated that that is totally and completely not the case. So the last clip I want to show you was almost like a throwaway clip from about halfway through the documentary. And here, Courtney is talking about the decision to stop taking testosterone. And we get hit with what I think is the most heartbreaking line of the whole thing. Was any of that decision tied up with you? somewhere in the back of your brain thinking i want to be a woman again no i just realized oh i live in the real world and i cannot be the man i want to be so suck it up <laughs> now i'm not about to prescribe the label transgender to anybody who has decided that it doesn't fit them but to me this doesn't seem like somebody who has detransitioned because they realized that they're not actually trans this seems like somebody who has detransitioned because they found that living in this world as a trans person too fucking hard. These people, the ones that the documentary claims to care about and be standing up for, are in so much pain. Documentaries like this are cruel to all trans people, but also to these people. A world where we strive to accept everybody, not shame them, is a better world for literally everyone. Calling detransitioners irreversibly damaged is not actually looking out for them or showing care, like, at all. Surely, working towards creating a society where, for example, your womanhood is not tied to your breasts helps everyone, like it helps the small number of detransitioners experiencing top surgery regret, it helps trans people, especially those for whom gender-affirming surgery has not been accessible, it helps cisgender women who have, may have had double mastectomies for other health reasons. Like, <sighs> This entire documentary is fear-mongering under the guise of care, and it achieves this through the use of false and deliberately misleading claims from start to end. Now why Channel 7 spent so much time and money trying so hard to spin and spread this narrative? I don't know, that's, that's for other people to speculate. I'm going to stick to my lane, which is simply reviewing whether the conclusions align with the evidence. So, this episode was pitched as an honest investigation into this supposed alarming mass brainwashing of children into becoming transgender and regretting it. But hopefully, you can all now agree with me when I say the 53-minute long piece was just so stocked to the brim with false claims, misleading statements, and honestly, a disgusting amount of emotional cruelty. And all I know is that we deserve better. So I was trying to work out how I wanted to 
conclude this video now that I've got some of my infuriation out. Um, I'm not really sure what my angry but source-based rant can or will achieve, but I know it sure helped me process just some of the real bafflement that so much time, money, and effort was poured into creating a piece of media that does good to nobody but active harm to so many. And the thing that has kept me coming back to this damn video has been hearing real stories from real people who have already been deeply negatively affected by Channel 7's decision to make and air this program. So I'm going to finish with a wonderful clip from Them Fatale explaining exactly how you can complain directly about this program and info on a petition to sign, which I strongly encourage you do. I'm also going to encourage you to take this evidence-based information you now find yourself armed with, and let's try to be the louder voices. But beyond that, cis people, allies, go tell a trans person in your life just how much they matter to you. Tell them how incredibly proud you are of them for being brave enough to be themselves despite all the challenges. My god, that isn't something that should take bravery, but it does. Trans people, I see you. I see your pain. Fuck, I feel your pain. But we have got each other, and I am proud of you. Hello, little gay people in my phone. If you saw that disgusting Channel 7 piece and you'd like to submit a complaint, but you don't know how to do it, follow along with this video. Go get a tablet, a phone from your housemate, your laptop, whatever you've got. You can keep this video playing in the background, and I'm going to talk you through step-by-step step how to submit a complaint according to the Australian Commercial Television Industry Code of Practice. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go and watch my last reel, then come back here. So we're here at complaints.freetv.com.au. Now I got a tip off from a friend who works in the television industry that this is actually the best way that we can force some action out of Channel 7. They are obligated to deal with these complaints. I'm aware that there's also a petition circling around from the wonderful St. South who was featured without their permission in the program. Definitely go sign that as well, but make sure that you actually put in a complaint here because they are not obligated to respond to a petition. A petition creates social pressure. This creates industry pressure. So we want to do both. Okay, so here we are on the form. If every single person who shared my last video shares this and submits one, that's thousands of people. So we might actually see some real action out of Channel 7. So please take the time to do it. You're going to put in your information, real information. I'm just not doxing myself in this video. We want to say that we're putting in a complaint about a program and then include these details, 3rd of the 9th, 8.45 p.m. So we want to address the television code of practice. So we've got section 3.21 material that may cause distress. Obviously, the show was very distressed with how inaccurate and how inflammatory it was. Section 3.3 is on accuracy and fairness. Obviously the program was not accurate, it was not fair, it was a complete misrepresentation of transness and of the processes of transition and accessing transition as a minor. Section 3.4 is on impartiality. Clearly not impartial, there was a very very clear transphobic agenda happening here. They would have used any real data or addressed any of the real issues that trans people face if it was remotely impartial at all. Like, Watch my last video if you want to go through it fact-checking bit by bit, but there were just lies upon lies within the video. Section 3.5 of the Code of Practice speaks to privacy. Now, numerous trans people had their privacy violated by this program, having their imagery used without consent and with false narratives implied about them. We can address that here as well. 
Now, you can sum up with your own words at the end. You can use similar words to what I've got here. Hopefully, having a little bit of a script for you to follow helps you to feel a bit more empowered to submit something. Now, what you submit doesn't have to be perfect. Make it clear, make it accurate, and make it respectful. But just submit something. Anything that you put in is going to do more than nothing. What we're not going to be doing today is nothing. So as long as it's just not nothing, good job. Then that is it, my friends. As soon as you hit that big red button, you have submitted a complaint according to the Australian Television Commercial Industry Code of Practice. The words are in a different order, but you get the idea. You did it. I'm proud of you. Raul is proud of you. Your trans friends are grateful. Fucking go tell someone else to do it now. Thank you so much. Curiosity. Curiosity. Kill the rat.